Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Sports Performance Manager at Catapult and co-author of Triphasic Training, Ben Peterson. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 47 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this is part one of a a two-part series with Ben Peterson. So in part one, we discuss everything Catapult and GPS. So a couple of weeks ago, I put a question out on Twitter asking people to put their questions to me so I can put them to Ben. So if you put them forward, I think we've gone through every one of them. So if you were one of them, we've answered your question and hopefully they're going to be valuable to everyone else listening as well. So I mentioned in episode 46 with Matt Jordan that there was going to be a really exciting announcement for the Pacey Performance Podcast on on this episode with Ben. So just want to announce that Train With Push are going to be the new sponsors of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really, really excited to get them on board. So firstly, I want to thank Train With Push for wanting to get on board. It's a really big step for the podcast that people of that calibre want to be involved and, and support the podcast. So I think there's nothing more cringy than listening to other podcasts and they have sponsors on who they've clearly never uh, they've never experienced the product, um, which is why I, I wanted to get involved with Push because I have actually experienced the, um, the Push Band. I'd encourage you, if you are interested, to check out episode 41 of the Pacey Performance Podcast because Matt Cusdub, who's a sports scientist at Train With Push, does a really great job of explaining benefits of using the push band and velocity-based training as a whole. And there's more experienced and knowledgeable guys than me out there who have written extensively on the uh, on the subject of velocity-based training, how it can be used in in training and its kind of benefits. Going to put a couple of links on paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 47 and there's going to be quite a few links on there which you can check out. So there's ones from Cal Vale, Mladen Ivanovic, uh, Dan Baker, all outlining the benefits of velocity-based training and in particular push band. So over the next couple of episodes, I'll keep you informed on how I'm getting on with using the push band. So kind of like a little ongoing review which I'm hoping will give you a little insight into how you can use it, um, whether it'll fit the guys that you, you work with or fit your own training, which I'm sure it will do. So now for the best bit for all you listeners. So Push have offered a discount code for all Pacey Performance listeners, exclusive to the podcast. So if you're in the US, when you go to trainwithpush.com, when it says redeem code, put in PaceyPerform10, and that will get you 10% off your purchase. If you're in the UK, go to strengthandconditioningeducation.com forward slash push. When you again get to check out, Pacey Perform 10 in the redeem code box and that will get you 10 pounds off a push band. So like I said, exclusive to listeners of the podcast. So make sure you take advantage of that over the next couple of weeks. So all that said, got a great interview coming up with Ben Peterson so enjoy the episode and I will speak to you soon 
Okay, hi guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we have Ben Peterson on the phone, who is the Sports Performance Manager at Catapult and co-author of Triphasic Training. So a couple of weeks ago, I put out a, um, a post on Twitter saying that I was going to talk to Ben and requesting that uh, guys shoot their questions to me so I can put them to Ben. So we're going to go through... Uh, the first part of a, of a two-part episode with Ben, um, firstly focusing around GPS. So before we get going, I just want to thank Ben for his time. Um, seems a long time since we, uh, since we first kind of connected and try to get this sorted. But I just want to thank him for his time and get him to introduce himself and a little bit about his experience and his background. So welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hey, thanks, Rob. I really appreciate the invite to come on and talk. Uh... You, you always uh, get some amazing people to chat with, so uh, I feel like I'm a little bit batting outside of my average here of, of getting the invite to come chat with you, so I, I really do appreciate that. Um, more background about me, I mean, you pretty much uh, said the, the probably the most important stuff, currently work at Catapult, um, love what I do there, getting to look at athletes and data. Um, before that, I did all my graduate work, my master's and my PhD at the University of Minnesota. Um, that's where I got to know Cal Dietz and, and kind of where the Triphasic Training book came from. Um, but there I did my research focused on um, kind of metabolic interactions and processes of team sport athletes um, and kind of, again, looking to compile a new uh, general preparatory model. Um, that's kind of what I based off that. Stepping back before that, I worked in minor league baseball for a year um, just as kind of a great experience, learning a lot, realized I didn't know anything, which is why I eventually went back to grad school. And, and the rest of that is so long ago, no one probably cares to hear about it. So We'll probably wrap it right there. <laughs> so how long ago was that, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, gal. So let's see. So all the way back to when I was in minor league baseball, we're probably talking seven, eight years now. Okay, cool. So how did the uh, the transition into into working with Catapult come about? Man, just by absolute blind luck on my part. For those people that watch Seinfeld, um, I always say it's my Kramer moment. You know, Kramer always just kind of falls ass backwards into stuff, and that's really what it was with Catapult. Um, I, I was, it was just great time, and I was just finishing up my PhD. I was in the process of defending my dissertation um, at the University of Minnesota. And the University of Minnesota had just purchased a Catapult system, and I'd gotten to know their strength staff. Um, it's a great group of guys over there. And, you know, I'd done some collaboration with them, testing some guys in the weight room and, and different things like that, um, and testing them, metabolic testing, um, bod pod, hydrostatic weighing, et cetera. And they basically just reached out and said, hey, we just, you know, we bought this system. It's supposed to give us a ton of data. You know, <clears throat> we have some idea what we're doing with it, but, you know, just love another set of eyes on it. So they invited me over um, when, when Catapult was there installing the system. And I remember sitting there next to... Um, the catapult uh, person, her name's Emma, Emma Beanland, and she she was you know going through all the data, and all of a sudden the computer turned on, and all these numbers just started ticking on the screen, you know, distance, yardage, heart rate, um, and I'd never heard of catapult before this, and I remember doing my own PhD research, I I had had the hardest time finding articles that really quantified, you know, movement movement specificity and um, loading parameters for for ice hockey, which is what I was looking at. So my head just started to go a million miles a minute that, you know, if this was that accurate and, and all that. So I didn't believe Emma at first when she told me, you know, that the system was accurate and, you know, what its um, CV was and all that stuff. So I went home that night and looked all this up and, and found 
that she wasn't blowing smoke at me. So I actually called her up and we went out the next day and, and just grabbed coffee. I just wanted to learn more about the system. Um, and, and at this time, Catapult was really starting to grow in the U.S. They were adding a lot of uh, football clients. Um, and again, it, it was just great timing. They were looking for someone, um, you know, with a sports science background that, you know, had experience um, at multiple levels, you know, collegiate, professional, all that. And uh, I was lucky enough to have fit the bill. So several interviews and a couple months later, and I came on as one of the one of the first, I think, three Catapult employees in the U.S., Cool. So what is the role of a sports science manager? Oh, man, that is multifaceted. You get to wear a lot of hats, which is a lot of fun. <clears throat> um, you know, uh, we do a lot of things as sport performance manager. It's, it's my job to go out um, when we have, a, um, you know, a team or someone who's interested in starting to track, um, wants to learn more about the system, wants to learn more about the data, the value that the data creates. Um, so I'll go out and spend a couple days with a university or, or a pro club. And um, it's kind of a two-way learning process. You know, I want to learn a lot about their team, how it functions, um, you know, who would be running the system, what what are they hoping to get out of the data, so we can, you know, modify expectations a lot on that. Um, and then just kind of, again, uh, kind of figure out what their use model would be. And then if it progresses past that point, if they become a client, um, then I'm kind of the, the touch person that continues to help them get comfortable with the data and then we bring in a couple other people we have sports scientists on staff and technical people that help them make sure the system's functioning make sure that um, their database is set up how they want which is a very complicated process you know uh, there's so much data um, that you can get not just catapult data but a lot of our clients will incorporate other stuff you know they'll incorporate um, you know sleep questionnaires health and wellness questionnaires rpe scores um heart rate data, heart rate variability. So trying to really help them set up that database from the start with the long-term view of, hey, you know, in six months, a year, two years, five years, you're going to want to be able to go back and look at these variables and have it set up like this to do this type of analysis. So we try to do a lot of the legwork for them, just having that, we have that experience level of helping them understand how to set that up. So it's a lot of fun. I get to spend a lot of time with the clients themselves. Uh, get to get to know a lot of people, so that's probably the funnest part of my job. Mm -hmm. Sounds awesome. So, from from when you first got involved with Catapult to to now, how what, what's changed? What's what's developed with Catapult and GPS as a whole? Oh God, it's a uh, a lot. I mean, so when I came on, I was the third Catapult employee in the U.S. There's just three of us. Um, now, as the company sits today, I believe we have 23 employees in the U.S. Um, and we're hoping to build that team out to about 35 by the end of this year. Um, and really that just comes from the explosion in the U S of, of kind of this, uh, what I call like this internal desire, the sports science, um, wave that's kind of sweeping everyone, which is great. I mean, everyone wants to be, I think more scientific and be able to quantify decisions that we make on, on these players, right? It's a long season. There's all these variables and we want to make sure that making the best decision possible for everyone. So obviously that's changed a lot with the company, just the number of people, the number of clients we have has, has exploded. Um, not the sports we work with, you know, when I was here, we really just worked with um, college football and the NFL. Now we work with the NBA. Um, we work with some NHL teams. We work with a lot of collegiate teams. Um, in college, we've, it's been really fun. We started working with a lot of Olympic sports. So, um, obviously soccer, uh, but also like men and women's basketball, 
women's volleyball. Um, lacrosse is a sport we're just starting to get into, which is really cool to look at, um, especially because some of the extra fun metabolic pieces that fall into that. Um, so, so yeah, I guess two things we've, we've created, obviously a lot more clientele, but then also we've, we've built out kind of our own internal research department to try and start to address these new sports and figure out, you know, how can we apply this data in a valuable way for these teams? Mm-hmm. So I'll just I'll just move on to um, a couple of the questions that got got put to us on Twitter or got put to me on Twitter to put to you. So Michael Symes has asked. I mean, you might have covered it a little bit, but a really kind of um, good start off question. What are the benefits of live GPS tracking in team sports? Sure. Um, I mean, there's lots, and it kind of depends on the sport. Um, the main one of, of why it's always really great to to track live would be um, if you have players that you're worried about whether it is they're coming back from an injury um, or, you know, there's certain external variables, like maybe it's a hot day outside, so ambient temperature reasons, things where um, you want to make, you know, instant decisions and feedback. Um, I always tell all of our clients the first step to tracking is you have to get to a point where you know what an athlete's average is. You know, what do they look like on a normal day? And that has to be on on an athlete by athlete basis especially as you get to professional sports, because as you look at data of these guys in the pros, they're all freaks to a certain extent, right? There's, they all have certain things that make them special, and that's why they you know, play professional sports. Um, but those things that make them special also make them very different from other athletes that might even be playing the same position. So you want to have a good picture right off the bat of right, what is normal for this athlete, and that could be you know, on a daily practice or for this week, whatever. And then really from that point, data is, is simple to a certain extent because you just want to track and see, one, is my athlete deviating from his average? And then there's a lot of things that go into that, right? At what point is it a significant enough deviation that you want to make an intervention or um, it justifies changing something in training or, or protocol? Um, but once you know what those averages are, that's why GPS is great. If, if you're worried about a guy's legs or his hamstrings, you can start tracking, you know, what's his total yards? at a high velocity, right? Or um, you can see just his total load score has gone up. You know, is he is he significantly higher in a load today than he should be? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, and I've seen teams take multiple different approaches with this, which has been really cool. There's some teams that take what I would say is a minimal, minimalist approach, which is they track it daily to watch stuff, but they very rarely ever will make an intervention. It's more of a, if something's different on that day, they log it while they're looking at the data and maybe jot some notes as to possible reasons why and, you know, if it's good or bad, and then they talk about it later. Um, there's other teams that will go into practice with a very specific plan for, you know, each of their guys. Like a football team might have a um, specific set of ideas of exactly how much high-velocity yardage they want individual receivers to have at a practice during that day. And, you know, I've seen teams that will have – you know, walkie-talkies, you know, there'll be a guy with a walkie-talkie at the computer, there'll be another, you know, walkie-talkie with the coach, the training staff, so they're in constant communication, so they really have a pulse of just exactly where every guy's at during practice. Um, Both of those things I've seen to be very successful, so I wouldn't say one is right, one is wrong. I really think it's just what fits the the team and kind of the culture of that team. Mm -hmm. So how long would you, um, how long have you seen that, people take to kind of create them averages how long is it before you can get some of that data and make use of it yeah um 
usually what I tell them is, you know, we follow like what basic statistics would tell you. So you want a sample size of probably 15 um, to at least be fairly confident that encapsulates a lot of the variability because um, obviously you don't want to go out and, and make a decision on one or two days because you might have no clue if that's high or low for that day. So ideally I tell people you want to have, you know, 12 to 15 sessions um, to where the point where you can start making some general interventions. Um, and then obviously as, as the more sessions you add to that, the more of the puzzle starts to come together. And then I tell them too, you know, like a general intervention is something like player load is a, is a very overall encompassing metric, right? We're basically capturing the total volume and intensity of work at a practice. So after 15 sessions, you should have a pretty good idea of what that person's average should be for a practice. Um, of a general load. So if you want to make sure the athlete isn't too high or too low on that, you can probably tweak some things to, to intervene on that. If you're trying to get much more specific, however, with, with your intervention, say if you're looking at something like um, an IMA measure, so a catapult, we have something called your inertial movement analysis, which looks at you know more explosive finite movements. It captures things like one, two-step acceleration, deceleration, and change of direction. Um, Really good insight into things like, you know, groin stress, um, um, load on the quad versus the posterior chain, things of that nature. But again, it's, it's much more specific. So you need a lot more data to really understand how you might want to intervene. So I tell clients on measures like that, we want to hold off, you know, and really collect data for, you know, probably 20 to 30 sessions before you really start to make interventions on things like that. Mm -hmm. So what, so what's the accuracy of the catapult system? Yeah, so the accuracy of the system, uh, from a GPS standpoint, depending on which system you're at, um, the, the GPS system, so the GLONASS um, satellite system outdoor, um, our error rate, I believe, is about 2.5%, uh, maybe 2.2 off the top of my head. Um, and that comes about, too, that's kind of been a huge step forward in Catapult over the last 12 months was upgrading to that GLONASS satellite constellation. Um, Basically, what it does is it, it doubled the amount of satellites that um, are tracking every catapult monitor outdoors. So it really improves the triangulation of the monitor to the satellite. It gets us a much more accurate picture. Um, the other system that Catapult has now is what we call Clear Sky. And that's a local positional tracking system that's meant for indoors. So in uh, general, general terms, what we do is we, we go into an arena. We would install pods which basically take the place of the satellites that would be outside. Um, and then so all these pods then triangulate and contract the monitors indoors. And that error rate is, I mean, we're down to about, I think, four centimeters. So less than half of a percentage point of error, because again, you're just minimizing the measure distance. So it becomes much, much more accurate. Cool. So next question uh, from uh, Jake Kemp. Uh, the view, your views on uh, absolute versus relative speed thresholds, for example, percentage of MAS, pros and cons? All right. So, yes, yeah, so we're having good questions here. Um, a lot of different ways you can do it, right? Um, part of that, I'm going to preface this by saying that I don't do a whole lot of stuff with soccer, right? So I do deal more with American sports, which aren't – we aren't uh, – they don't deal with that type of data as much, but like, like an MAS measure is, is really important kind of from like a general standpoint. But I would say if you really want to know their, like their MAS yardage, you have to get very specific with what you're entering into the computer is like their heart rate data as well to really understand if you, if you go through and actually test them 
and like you're on a treadmill and you know based on their heart rate and vo2 i know that their mas speed is whatever you know 12 kilometers an hour 14k an hour whatever that is um i think that's a really good way to track a lot of stuff as far as max velocity the best way i still think is to one is to get max velocities from players at practice so again spend that you know 15 sessions and go through and kind of collect that data i would hope over two weeks that you're going to have an athlete that pretty much hits their max speed you should have a relative idea because again game conditions for max speed and when they're in their equipment or, or moving around are usually very different than if you have someone line up and you know run a 20 40 60 meter sprint um but once we pull what those max velocities are we always like to put those into the system for each individual player and then base all of kind of like their high velocity yardage analysis on a percentage basis. So you can compare apples to apples. So now I could look at an athlete and say, okay, athlete X compared to athlete Y spent, you know, this much time at 90% or above of their max velocity. So now you can start to see back and forth and kind of make some better comparisons. Um, but I will add to that that you definitely want to make sure you have, again, the right, the right velocity number in that. Um, because the really interesting thing we've seen with like, let's say a sport like football, for example, American football, I should preface that this is an international podcast. Um, and I've had a lot of good debates with a lot of Aussies and Englishmen about why we call it football. Cause you never really use your foot. And those are all great. Art. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're probably just, you're rolling your eyes at me right now. Aren't you? No, no, no. It's all you, you go with it, mate. You go with it. Whatever. Don't make a difference to me. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of really great research out there from a lot of, of labs that have shown that it, it's very important, right, that you want to hit that top velocity for a player, you know, every seven to 10 days, just to make sure you maintain that quality within the structure, you know, which again is primarily a neural quality. So you just want to make sure that you don't detrain that top speed part. Otherwise, you are at a higher risk for, for a hamstring pull. And it always amazes me in looking at American football data of how how long wide receivers can go and skill guys, cornerbacks, wide receivers, without hitting that max velocity in practice. Like, it is not uncommon for them to not hit it at all during the week just because of, you know, the routes they might be running in practice or maybe they don't condition at the end or, you know, if they don't have forethought to it, they can go. And I've seen, I've seen guys go, you know, almost two weeks and not get above 82% of their max velocity, especially like, you know, a slot receiver or someone that's doing a whole lot of, you know, XL, D-cell, quick explosive type stuff. But again, we go back to, I don't want to get that player in a game situation where it's been 14 days since he's hit that top speed and all of a sudden he's out on the corner and he sees something and they make an audible and now instead of running that slant, he's running a nine, which is pretty much just a sprint up the sideline, you know, go deep. And he turns on that fourth gear and all of a sudden something, you know, pops, tweaks, whatever, just because we haven't addressed that quality. So a lot of a lot of American football teams are are making sure they have that top velocity number in there. And then they just check it almost like um, like a training protocol just to make sure that they hit that peak at least once every seven days, you know, to go through and hit it. And, and I think that's done a lot, actually, to help reduce uh, some hamstring injuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a guy from a championship football club, Ross, who discussed that quite at length um, in, a, in a previous podcast, which is cool. So that links in quite nicely. Just moving on to um, the actual the data itself. So going from Tom Williams from Leicester City, another soccer club, 
From all the data points GPS provides, um, what are the most useful? I know that's kind of very kind of generic and you might have to um, kind of elaborate on how you choose what is the most useful. Sure. Um, like you said, that's an open-ended question. It's a great question. Um, I'm not going to give a great answer. You're probably going to hate this, but the honest answer is it depends, it depends on your sport, your team, your staff, because um, everybody practices differently. Everybody interprets the data differently. Um, really, for me, that's the, the really cool thing about data um, and collecting that is it means different things to different people. I mean, it's when you get to the application point of it, right, and finding value, like what we're talking about right now, it's really more of an art than it is a science. I mean, you need the science there to support the rationale as to, you know, why we're collecting these variables, why they could be important, and, you know, the physiological undertones as to how you could apply that. But when it comes to direct application, how you pull those different variables together and your style and, and all the other things that come into that, that's really art, and it's really fun to see how different people do it. So with me using that as kind of a cop-out, roundabout answer to not directly <laughs> answer his question. No, no, it's all. No, it's all. The other, the other one I would add, though, is the thing that time and again, out of all the variables, you know, we collect a catapult, and there's 260-some of them, and that doesn't even count, you know, putting stuff together and mashing it up to make your own variables. Out of all those variables, the things that time and time again always come back to seem to matter the most are the things that would always matter the most in any part of training. You want to know volume, and you want to know intensity. Um, and if you can quantify those two things accurately and really hone those in on your, on your team, you can, you can sidestep a lot of injuries and see pretty good improvements in performance. So on those two aspects for catapult data, you're talking player load, which again is, um, it's, it's a scaling number, right? So it's a number based on the accelerometry data <clears throat> that's going to tell you in a general sense, how much work has the athlete done today? You know, if, if it's a, the number's 300 versus a guy that's 200, the guy that has a player load of 300 has done 50% more work. Um, then, then there's other ways to quantify that as an intensity, whether it be player load per minute or player load per yard. So now you can understand, again, as a time function, how, how intense are they working per minute or how much workload have they done per yard. And in a sport like American football, the player load per yard is really interesting to look at kind of the bigger guys, the offensive linemen, defensive linemen, guys that certainly aren't running around and, you know, adding five, 600 yards of high velocity running during practice, but they're firing off a football and they're, they're, they're either applying or withstanding a whole lot of force in a short amount of time without moving a whole lot of distance. So those are really interesting to look at as well. So I guess, yeah, player load, player load intensity is important. And then the other most important one I would say as, cause it's just easy is going back to that um, velocity band issue is just making sure that guys are hitting those velocity bands that you want them to hit. Those would kind of be the main metrics I tell everybody to start with. And they're, they're pretty easy to apply, easy to understand. Um, and they're also the metrics too, that have the biggest carryover from club to club. So you can usually help, help teams understand a little bit better too of, you know, what are some numbers that would be considered normal? You still want them to find their own individual normal, but you can kind of help guide the ship a little bit better right out of the gate. So, I mean, we're going to come on to um, a question from your friend, uh, Cal Vale, in a minute. But we, I discussed with him probably 20, 25 episodes ago about the use of heart rate. Is that still something that is kind of pivotal in, in what people are doing in the, in the people that you're dealing with? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the heart rate's great because it kind of gives you your internal metabolic load and catapult's great because you get your mex- your mechanical or external load. And to really know the full picture of what's going on, you, you need to have both of those inputs. Because otherwise, I've seen it both ways in data sets where one where an athlete might be presenting normally from a mechanical point, his load might be the same, his load per minute is the same. But when you look at him metabolically, his heart rate might be, you know, 20 beats higher per minute on average than it normally would have been the week before accomplishing the same load. And, and I can tell you similar stories where that's flipped, where the heart rate looks fairly normal, but it looks normal because they're not, they're not producing the load and the intensity that they normally would. So you kind of need both to be able to tease out what might actually be going on to that athlete. So, so within Catapult and with the guys that you're working with, are you creating um, like a database of practices so you can compare a Monday to a Monday to a Monday and a Tuesday, a Tuesday to a Tuesday, if that's quite um, consistent throughout the week, throughout the, the preparation for a match? Yep, exactly right. So we do a lot of stuff now with um, tagging practices and again, going back to setting up the database in advance, because those are things that right you probably can't compare during the first season. But the second, third, fourth, you definitely want to go back to. And we'll get a little more specific as well. Like we'll tag so you can look at, you know, a Tuesday practice versus a Tuesday. But then we'll also go and look at the specific part of practice. So maybe what did a team period or an individual period look like on a Tuesday versus another Tuesday? Um, we have some of our more advanced clients that are really doing some interesting analysis right now where they're looking at, you know, um, like let's compare a Tuesday to a Tuesday on weeks we won the game versus weeks that we didn't win the game, you know, and trying to really tease out what are the small things that might have been different throughout the week from a practice standpoint that could have made the difference in that win or loss. Um, so that's kind of really interesting to start to look at. Cool. So, so how many of your clients kind of doing internal studies on their, on their data? How many clients are doing internal studies? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> yeah. No, um, quite a few actually. Um, I would say, I would say probably, you know, 40% are doing what I would say some fair, some fairly in-depth, you know, statistically um, in-depth studies where they're, they're kind of going back. Um, I think that number is going to grow a lot, partially just because, too, you know, in the U.S., we're still in our infancy in this whole sports science data thing. We know we're not like you Europeans with your 10 years of data you can go back and look at. Um, most of our football, football teams over here, you know, are one or two years worth of data. Um, and some of our sports like uh, in lacrosse, this will be the first year we're really collecting lacrosse data. So there's still that initial point of just general discovery before we can really even get into the more scientific, nitty gritty statistical stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so what lacrosse clubs are you working with? Is it, is it collegiate? Yep. Right now, all collegiate stuff. Um, there's not a huge professional. I mean, we have a professional league over here, but haven't gotten into that one yet. Cool. So coming on to the question from your friend, Carl, um, what's the next step for Catapult Hardware, specifically in terms of foot strike? Yeah, that's a great question from Carl. I love I love where his head's at because he's basically asking, you know, can this be a portable force plate? Okay. Um, which, w- which would be awesome. It's not quite to that point yet. Um, and mainly, again, we're, we're limited by, you know, Hertz rate. You know, for cycling, the accelerometer is a 100 hertz accelerometer, which which gives you a picture. I mean, when we go through the raw trace data on the system, you can certainly look and see 
see little things like that. It's really hard though to differentiate like the heel to the toe, especially if you're at a higher rate of velocity, just again, because of the sampling frequency and how fast that movement is. So I guess what I would tell Carl is yes, but it's still a little messy. Um, it's not really what the, the system's designed for at this point. We have, we have some stuff, you know, on the drawing board R and D where we're, where we'll have, uh, where we want to come out with a little bit beefier monitor that has maybe a little bit, um, higher end hardware on it, maybe like a 500 Hertz accelerometer that you could use for those types of things. Um, because from a, from a movement perspective, that would be invaluable, like on a return to play protocol or something for a training staff to be able to throw in like the catapult, uh, monitor that's, you know, geared up for, for that type of analysis and to be able to put them through a course and really see, you know, at a 500 Hertz breakdown of exactly how is everyone planting, moving, et cetera. Um, and I, I think you'll see that sooner rather than later. Okay, cool. Um, and last but not least, so this is this is obviously going to be a, a really big one, and again, a very open ended one. Um, so that although a very individual thing, depending on the coach, how how have you seen in your experience the best way to present this GPS data? Again, it's going to be very dependent on on who you're working with um, and, and the coach himself. Um, but what what have you seen in your experience? Yeah, so like you said, it can be very coach specific. There's really there's two approaches I've seen work very well. Um, one I call the, the uh, Darren Burgess approach to data because um, I, I heard him say tell this story a couple of years ago and it's proved very true. And he'd probably do a lot more justice to it. But to paraphrase the story, when, when he was first starting out um, trying to give the, the coaches information, he would write up a report every night and he would just slip it under the coach's door and walk away. You know, you wouldn't go up to the coach. You wouldn't tell the coach about all this really great, cool stuff I've just discovered. And, oh, here's our player averages and our wide receivers are so fast, etc. He would just make a very simple report and put it under the coach's door and walk away. And the, the funny thing about the story that stood out to me when he told it is that the coach never acknowledged that he got any of these reports. You know, and I think this went on for like weeks or possibly months. Um, but every night, Darren would go would go put that under there. and um, I believe if I'm not misunderstanding the story and Darren will probably tell you I'm wrong, but was that at one point um, he came out to practice one day and the coach had changed something based off of one of his suggestions on the sheet for one of the players because the workloads were high. And the funny part again is the coach still didn't come up to him and say, Hey, good job on that report or thanks for showing that. He still didn't acknowledge that he got that information, which I think is hilarious. But, but again, it showed that, the coach was finally opening up to using data. Um, so I really think that's a great approach is it's gotta be small, small doses, very basic stuff. And I think us as practitioners, you know, being on the, the performance side, we can't have unrealistic expectations. You have to go into it and understand, you know, you might only get one thing to change over the period of a month, but you should view that as a huge victory and don't be depressed about that. Cause it's not going to change overnight. It is going to take a long time. Um, but teams that have done that have been very successful. And the other thing about that approach is once you get one or two things right and the coach sees that all oh, these small changes I made have had these big benefits for me, the coach becomes more and more receptive to start adopting more things at a faster pace. So you'll see it accelerate over time. The other approach that works really well is the um, wait back and wait for something bad to happen approach. And I know that sounds terrible, but it works really well. And unfortunately, sometimes it's just what you have to do. Um, 
And what I mean by that is you collect all of your data, you you are very diligent and you're documenting everything, players that you think are at risk of injury or at a higher chance of injury. Um, but again, it's early on. Like it's, it's almost not fair too for you to expect to make that report to a coach because you might not really know what's going on yet either. But you sit back and you wait. And let's say that a player eventually does get hurt. They have um, a hamstring injury or they pull a groin or something. Then go back and really comb through that data and see if you can't find a pattern that presented that that could have shown you some insight or showed you that, hey, this athlete was progressing in such a way that probably put them at a higher risk of injury. And once you make that report and you have to make very sure that you're not, um, right, whenever you do data analysis post-hoc, there's always that tendency to see things that aren't there. So you have to be very diligent that you're not um, kind of, uh, stretching too far from what your analysis is, but but take that report and go to a coach and don't throw it in their face. Don't say nanny nanny boo boo. I could have told you this was going to happen because that's not going to be received well either. But um, just go up and say, you know, hey coach, I know we had this injury. I know we need to avoid stuff like that. You know, I went back and looked over all of their data. Here's what I see, or here's what I saw as presented. You know, I, I think that we could probably track this pattern with other players and, and hopefully try and, you know, prevent other injuries in the future. And, and again, that's usually a good way to get a coach open and receptive to being like, oh, all right, so this data isn't this terrible thing. It's not trying to tell me to do how to do my job. Um, and it's going to have huge benefits for me and my team. So um, those two approaches, I think, are, are good ones to take. Cool. Well, we've come to the end of the um... – End of the questions that I had on uh, on GPS. So just to just to round up part one, the reason I did it in two parts was because it was kind of obvious that there was um, two specific things that I wanted to speak to you about. But just before we get into the the second part, um, do you just want to give us a um, a bit of a um, knowledge on on where people can find you and keep up to date with everything you got going on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, uh, you, you can get a hold of me by email. Um, I'll give all my personal one, BJP dot peterson at gmail.com um another another great spot though to, to get a hold of me is um i got a couple of friends that finally convinced me to join twitter so i'm learning how to tweet and do all that kind of fun stuff but i found it's a great tool to to keep up on a bunch of people so um, my twitter handle um is just ben underscore j underscore peterson um so you can always find me on there too and um, actually, that's the best way to do because I, I travel around so much for um, work and everything, especially around um, the U.S. Um, you know, I tweet out a lot of times if, you know, if I'm at a certain spot or I'm in a certain town and I just like to reach out and see who else is there. And if someone wants to grab a cup of coffee, it's a great way to found to just meet people and, and get exposed to a lot of different um, different approaches and, and how people are doing things. So I always enjoy that as well. Mm, absolutely. So you got any plans to come to Europe? Uh, I'm hoping to, not on the books officially. Um, my wife is due with our first child here in two weeks, so I've, I'm on the uh, no-fly list here for about <laughs> the next month. I think my wife would kill me if I left. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, certainly sometime in the next year, I'd love to make it over to Europe. We're actually doing a lot of really cool stuff in ice hockey over there, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, so, so hopefully I can come over there and, and get a little exposure to that and kind of uh, bring some of the stuff over there that we're doing over here. Cool. Sounds good. Well, we'll end it there and we'll, um, I'll just thank you for your time and, uh, we'll catch you in, uh, episode two. All right. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Okay, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 47 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Ben. 
It was a really cool guy to speak to and I can't wait to put part two out for you to hear that um, and, and we discuss all things triphasic training. So again, last but not least, big thanks to Train With Push for getting involved with the podcast. All US listeners can go to trainwithpush.com and you can put Pacey Perform 10, which will get you 10% off a push band. All UK listeners can go to strength and conditioning education forward slash push. Again, Pacey Perform 10 in the redeem code box and that will get you 10 pounds off a push band. So thanks for tuning in and I will speak to you in part two with Ben Peterson in episode 48.